This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we have the somber duty of focusing upon yet another uh, recent tragedy in our world, uh, and this is the tragedy of the um, earthquake in Turkey and in Syria that uh, recently occurred. It was a 7.8 uh, earthquake, followed by a 7.5 and many other aftershocks. And as I'm sure all of our listeners know, this has led to uh, really inhuman devastation of so many parts of Turkey and Syria that we have all seen images of, but I don't think we can fully grasp. Um, We are fortunate today to be joined by an expert on the region who has also been in the region who can help us to understand both the implications of this earthquake, but also the history and politics around it. As always on our podcast, we want to understand how history influences our moment and how history can offer us some pathways forward as well. We're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Gunul Tol. Uh, she is the founding director of the Turkey program at the Middle East Institute, a prominent think tank in Washington, D.C. She's the author of a brand new book, Erdogan's War, A Strong Man's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Uh, the book was just published in January, so her timing is very good. And uh, she has taught at both George Washington University and the National Defense University. I should say that uh, Dr. Toll, is, uh, her family is from the, the city of Mersin which is near the city of Antakya, uh, which is one of the large cities that was devastated by this earthquake. And she was in uh, Mersin and traveled to Antakya uh, as soon as the earthquake occurred before returning to Washington, D.C. Her family, among many others, sustained losses uh, of loved ones uh, during this earthquake. Um, Ganul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Dr. Gunul Toll, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's um, scene-setting poem. What is your poem about today, Zachary? Uh, well, my poem is about uh, trying to imagine this uh, earthquake and, and, and how devastating it must be to, to, uh, to be shaken out of bed in the middle of the night um, to the news that your city is destroyed or, or to see one's, one's family members and, and one's neighborhood complete collapse and just trying to grasp how devastating that must be. Right, right. Well, let's hear your, your thoughts. For Iskenderun, I awoke at two and walked the dark streets, finding the port in the dim light opening its gaping mouth to the sea. I felt each cobblestone as if a solid, eternal presence. This one saw the first man kiss the first woman, this one the first automobile. I must have fallen asleep somewhere, around four, for I awoke with a cobblestone on my head and a hunger I feel still to this day. The world is eating itself, but we have nothing to eat. The earth is eating us and eating our children. I can no longer hear them scream. That's beautiful. Um, Ganul, if, if you are comfortable, can you share your experience and reaction with us? Sure, um, Jeremy. We were at the time in Mersin. Um, it, Mersin is a southern Turkish city, which is only a few hours 
drive from Antakya, which was hit really badly um, in the earthquake. I was with my sister and her four-year-old daughter. Uh, we woke up um, around 4, 4.15 a.m. I thought I was in a dream. I quickly realized that it was an earthquake. Uh, people say that it lasted um, 30 seconds, but it felt like eternity. So I grabbed my, my sister, who was in shock, and her four-year-old daughter, and we ran outside and uh, ran a few blocks to reach my, my parents' home. Then we received a phone call from my sister's husband, who said that Antakya had uh, been leveled to the ground and that his family members uh, were trapped under the rubble. And then we drove, we took my father's truck and we drove to Antakya. And it was, um, it was like a war zone. Uh, there were uh, dead bodies on the streets, people screaming, people trying to pull out their, their loved ones. Um, uh, it was, uh, it was a tragedy. And I, I understand that you had loved ones who were trapped in, in the rubble. Is that correct? That's right. My, my sister's husband's entire family, his parents were there, his, uh, his cousins, uh, his, um, uncles and his entire family were trapped. And, and were you able to get them out? Well, we pulled out the father first and he was alive uh we couldn't reach the mother she did not hear hear us um so we pulled him out um and we waited we waited for 48 hours for rescue workers to arrive and when they finally did they told us that they couldn't help us uh, because they had received instructions uh, that they had to focus their Rescue effort, rescue effort, so uh, elsewhere, um, and as a result, um, the father died, as did uh, thousands of others. I'm so sorry to to hear of of, of your loss. Um, it, you you were also involved in rescue efforts in 1999, which I think was the last big earthquake to uh, hit this region. It was not as large an earthquake as this one. Uh, did not cause as much death, but it was also quite a devastating earthquake. How would you compare this experience to what you witnessed firsthand in 1999? That's right. I was a college student at the time in nearby Ankara, the capital, and we quickly organized, we mobilized a network of college students. Um, we went there, uh, the earthquake zone, which was in northwestern Turkey. Um, we uh, were there as part of a large uh, network of NGOs uh, distributing aid, water, food to the victims. Um, and at that time, uh, the government was also slow to respond. Um, but by the time we arrived, which was shortly after the earthquake hit, uh, there were Turkish troops on the ground um, taking part in search and rescue efforts. There were civil society organizations um, like like us, volunteer groups, um, distributing aid uh, to the victims. And there were government rescue agencies. Um, and yet, at the time, the government, the coalition government came under 
under criticism for its uh, slow response. They came late, but they were there. Um, and this time around in Antakya for 48 hours, and I've heard from, from survivors in other cities that it took them even longer, seven to two hours for state rescue agency to arrive. Uh, Turkish troops uh, were not deployed uh, and there were no civil society organizations uh, working on the ground. So for almost three days, there was no one to help, which was significantly different from what I had seen uh, in 1999. And to me, I think that was the most striking picture of Erdogan's near Turkey. You mentioned the political moment uh, surrounding the 1999 earthquake. W- could you explain for some of our listeners who might not know this this history very closely, uh, how that moment and that disaster, that tragedy, changed the politics of Turkey? The 1990s uh, were considered a lost decade. Um, many of us uh, thought that the 1990s were like a curse. Um, there were coalition governments, uh, dysfunctional institutions, an economic crisis. Uh, there were bombs exploding everywhere. So 1990s were a pure chaos. And the 1999 earthquake came against that background. So the government's slow response were seen by many uh, living in Turkey and the final proof that institutions in the country were not working, the state was not responsive to the needs of its, its people. And then you had these uh, wobbling among coalition partners that made decision-making very difficult. Um, so the country, many of us thought, that was not really being governed. That was the perception. And then came the 1999 earthquake and everyone thought, this is it. This is, the whole system is bankrupt and we need a way out of this. Uh, Then came Erdogan and he promised exactly that. And uh, I think it's fair to say from your description, you don't think he's delivered. Well, it was clear to me and to millions of others last week that that he did not. Uh, He promised after the 1999 earthquake that that things were going to change radically. And in many ways, they have. But in some ways, they haven't. Uh, In the 20 years he's been in power, uh, we don't have coalition governments anymore. We don't have any other person other than Erdogan who makes decisions. So he calls the shots and that is radically different from the 1990s. And yet there's still corruption in the country. Uh, there is bad governance. And on top of that, we don't have institutions that we had in the 1990s. So he came on that promise, he made that promise, and many of us believed him. So when he came to power in 2002, 
he, the promises that he made, I think, struck a nerve. This was a country that was tired of coalition governments, a country that was sick of all the established political parties, uh, sick of the establishment. They thought a small corrupt elite was running the country and they had no idea um, what people were, how people, how much they were suffering. So Erdogan said that, you know, I represent the people. I am the people. We are going to get rid of this small corrupt elite. Uh, and I'm going to fix things. I'm going to fix institutions. I, I promise you a more democratic, more prosperous country where state institutions are the servants of the people, not the other way around. So we, we believed him. Uh, and yet, uh, last week, um, once again, I saw that he took the 1990s and all the problems associated with the 1990s and took them to a whole new deadly level. You mentioned the small corrupt elite. There have been many reports in the American press and you've written about the corrupt elite around Erdogan, which in some cases, in many cases, was responsible for the poor condition of buildings. Uh, do you see... Erdogan and, and that sort of corruption uh, as, as one of the central causes of this disaster. That's certainly right. And I think that's the bigger story here to tell. The Turkish economy under Erdogan rode high on, on the back of a construction boom. So he enriched a small circle of close uh, associates from the construction sector by awarding them all infrastructure projects without competitive tenders or uh, proper uh, regulatory oversight. And these companies uh, uh, embarked on a massive building spree, constructing infrastructure and homes in earthquake hotspots without following proper building co codes. In Hatay, for instance, that's where my, my sister and her family um, uh, live. One of, and it's also one of the hardest hit areas in the country, residential buildings, hospitals, and even the local branch of the Turkish Disaster and Emergency Management Presidency, which is called Afat in Turkish, all built by Erdogan's uh, cronies were either leveled to the ground or suffered massive damage. And the town's only airport, uh, built on top of a fault line by a company, again closely tied to Erdogan, was split in two by the earthquake. Um, Another problem is he oversaw a sweeping amnesty program that forgave faults in millions of buildings across Turkey. So he now wants us to believe that this was a natural disaster that no government in the world could have responded to it in, in, in any different way and that we should just accept it as fate. But what I see and what I have been seeing both as a a, a person from Turkey and also a scholar uh, studying Turkey, uh, that this was largely a man-made disaster. The things that Erdogan did and the things that he hasn't done, I think, paved the way for last week's tragedy. And now, more than a week since the earthquake hit, have you seen a change in the government's response? Has the Turkish government 
been better at, at getting to help people and also providing shelter and food for those who have lost their homes? It's better than the first few days, but it's still not enough. There are now, uh, a thought is, is there on the ground, but in many cases, it's making things worse. There are now volunteer organizations, thousands of people poured into these earthquake zones to help the victims. You have international agencies, you have foreign country delegations uh, taking part in search and rescue efforts. You have uh, opposition-run municipalities. Uh, they mobilized all their resources. So there are a lot of people right now on the ground. But the government's actions, even now, at this very moment, are making things harder for all those people who are there to help the victims. So Afat is, uh, wants to be the sole coordinator of everything because Erdogan does not want anyone else to take credit. So um, Afat is obstructing uh, this, these other agencies' uh, efforts to the point some of them uh, have already left the country. Uh, so uh, there is now a, a government agency on the ground, but they are not, they are not doing a uh, lot to help the victims. So they were not only too slow to respond, but they are disorganized and also at to that, the fact that Erdogan sees this as a critical turning point and wants to take uh, all the credit. Uh, that's why now Afat is, I think, obstructing uh, the efforts of, of other agencies who are trying to help the victims. And just to remind our listeners, Afat is the government relief agency, correct? That's right. Um, and you mentioned earlier that that even in the the response post disaster post earthquake uh, you've seen rampant corruption and there's this been a perception at least that afad is not responding to all all um emergencies in the disaster zone equally is that correct that's right and i've experienced that firsthand so my family um had to wait for 48 hours and i remember seeing that man uh, he was wearing a kind of uniform, uh, uh, which made us think that, you know, he, he's here, here to help us. So we rushed, we went up to him and begged for help. And he asked for a, an address. He said, do you know where this address is? Uh, because I'm here to help the people who are living in that address. And I was sent by a member of parliament from Istanbul. So that just, that very moment uh, highlighted the fact that how corrupt the whole country has become. That's astonishing to me. I just want to make sure that that I understand this right, that you were waiting for help for members of your family. Um, I think your your sister's uh, husband's family who were in the rubble and an aid worker arrived or someone from an aid agency and they said they would only help someone at a different address who had some connection to someone in parliament and they did not offer you assistance. Am, 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 I, am I understanding that correctly? That's right. It's hard to believe, but it's right. If I might ask, how did you react at the time? Um, I started crying. My started, my sister started screaming, and uh, uh, my sister's husband 
he wanted to calm us down because he thought if we protested, then that help would never come. Uh, but in the end, uh, his parents and his entire family died. And that's been, you mentioned protesting, uh, that there's been a whole nother story too uh, of late that the Erdogan regime is 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 spending its time or devoting its time more to the suppression of, of protest and dissent than to the continued rescue efforts, which today are still unearthing uh, uh, people trapped in the rubble. Uh, is there, is, is, does the focus of the regime at the moment seem to be that much more in the sort of its own political stability. That's right. They're trying to spin the narrative. So one of the first things they did was not deploying Turkish troops, not sending Afat, uh, the, the rescue agency, uh, not doing anything to help the victims. But the first thing they did was uh, to work on this video, this propaganda video. Uh, they basically said, this is the disaster of the century, uh, and there was nothing we could have done better. Uh, so a- any government in the world would have been helpless in the face of such a tragedy. So that was the very first thing. And the presidency's communications department um, sent this note to uh, foreign uh, to Turkish embassies across the world, asking them to control the narrative telling them you should tell people your contacts and to the public that Turkish state, Turkish government have done everything in their power to respond to this efficiently. So those were the very first things that they did. And, and later, the second thing that they did was they slowed down Twitter because Erdogan was coming under so much criticism on social media uh, and, and remember, Twitter played a critical role in the, in the early hours because Twitter became a platform where people organized help, channeled help to the regions affected. They were, Twitter was used as a platform, uh, for people to disseminate info about the whereabouts, uh, of their loved ones. So Twitter, Access to Twitter, information shared on Twitter was really critical for search and rescue efforts. And yet Erdogan decided to slow it down. It sounds like classical authoritarian behavior, which is about holding on to power and, as you say, spinning the narrative more than serving the people. And I know this is something you've also studied as a scholar. Are, are, are you surprised? I'm not. Uh, this is Erdogan's MO, unfortunately. When a disaster hits the country, uh, the man who loves the camera so much, he disappears from public view for a few days. He lets his cabinet ministers handle the situation so he can blame them if anything goes wrong. Uh, but this time, again, he uh, went to the uh, earthquake um, regions uh, three days after the earthquake hit. Uh, <clears throat> usually he takes longer, but I think this time uh, the, the scale of the tragedy was so big that he uh, felt that he needed to go. Uh, but so this is, this is how he reacts to, to disasters, to crises, to problems. As if he's not the one who makes all the decisions in the country, 
uh, he blames it on other people, even the opposition parties. Uh, there was a time I remember where he blamed the opposition for the country's economic problems. He's been in power for 20 years. And just today he said, give me one, another year. I'm going to fix this. And the opposition's response to that was spot on saying, we gave you 20 years, uh, and you destroyed the country. We are buried under the rubble. So we don't have one day to give to you, let alone a year. My understanding is that there's an election that is supposed to come soon. Uh, I know there's also talk of Erdogan trying to postpone the election. Do you think uh, the events of the last few weeks, as you've described them to us so vividly, so courageously, do you think this will change things in, in Turkey? Will citizens who have supported Erdogan in the past not support him now? What, what do you foresee happening? You know, uh, Jeremy, uh, disasters have political implications for leaders, but it depends on the type of regime that you're, you live in. If you live in a perfect democracy, uh, maybe I shouldn't say perfect. Uh, I was going to talk about, uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, in the U.S. If you live in a democracy, you pay a political price because you rely on, uh, in, on, uh, a, a large uh, coalition to stay in power and people expect you uh, to, to protect them from, from, from disasters. And when you fail to do that, you pay a political price for that. Uh, but in, in autocracies, it's not quite straightforward. Uh, autocrats can, because they control media, they can spin the narrative, they can postpone the elections. Uh, they can do all kinds of things to make sure that they don't pay a political price. So in this context, uh, elections, um, I know scholars call Turkey a competitive authoritarian regime. So it's, it's still authoritarian, but it's competitive, meaning that there are still elections. They are not always free and fair, but there are still elections, which means Erdogan is going to pay a political price. The elections are scheduled to take place in May. Uh, under these conditions, it's impossible to hold those elections in May. According to the constitution, Erdogan um, can only delay for a month, which means he's going to have to hold the elections in June. And in that case, I think he will pay a price. And the opposition's uh, strategy, the steps that it has taken so far after the earthquake, uh, I think uh, were the right moves. They changed their narrative, they put the blame on Erdogan, and they mobilized their resources at municipalities. They sent them to, uh, to the disaster zone. So the opposition, I think, stands a good chance against Erdogan if the elections are held soon. But Erdogan is trying to postpone the elections for a year. And even in that case, I think he's going to have difficulty. Uh, but I think I see his chances better if the elections are held in a year from now, because he's probably going to use financial aid and, and international financial aid too, to rebuild those cities. He's talking about starting the construction immediately, and he might turn things around. Do you think that Erdogan will change as a leader, or at least that his policy will change, domestic policy and foreign policy, as a result of, of this disaster, but also the 
extreme political embarrassment that this must be for his party and, and for himself as, as a leader. Well, judging by his initial reactions, uh, I don't think he's capable of empathy. Um, as my, uh, while my sister and her family were trying to pull the bodies of their loved ones out, uh, out of the rubble to give them a proper burial, he was calling those who complained about the slow state response dishonorable on national TV. So this man cannot empathize. All he cares about is staying in power and he's going to do everything in his power to do that. Uh, and he will use foreign policy as well as he has done in the last 20 years. And that's the main argument of my, of my book. He's going to use foreign policy to consolidate his power. Uh, and at home, he's going to take steps. And that includes, again, unconstitutionally postponing the elections for a year. He's going to do everything in his power to, uh, to keep his grip on the country. This is such a um, difficult subject to talk about, and we, we so appreciate uh, your willingness to, to speak so frankly with us. We always like to close our um, podcast, Ganul, with a um, discussion of how this knowledge that we've shared, how this history and contemporary analysis can, can help us to think about positive things we can do going forward. What should the U.S. and the European Union be doing now? And also, what should citizens who are listening and want to help, what should they be doing now? I know Erdogan angered many in the Western world uh, with his policies, with his anti-Western narrative. So I understand if Western governments uh, are not too enthusiastic about uh, extending a helping hand. But this is not about Erdogan. This is about the people of Turkey. And I think the people of Turkey uh, need help from the international community. There are great uh, NGOs, Turkish NGOs on the ground. One of them is called Ahbab. It's run by a, a, rock, uh, a rock singer. It's doing great job on the ground. I've seen it with my own eyes. So please consider donating to uh, NGOs, not the government, uh, but NGOs and volunteer organizations um, on the ground to help the victims. And can you spell the, uh, the organization you recommended? It's A-H-B-A-P. And, and I think, as you say, this is certainly a way we hope to get aid directly to people who, who, who need it. What about government policies? What, what should we be asking our leaders in Washington and Berlin and London and Paris and elsewhere? What, sh what should we be asking them to do? Um, well, I know Turkish government is working with uh, Western governments to secure aid. Uh, and I've heard the World Bank uh, pledged uh, financial aid. So I think all these governments working with Erdogan's regime, they just want to make sure that the, the, the financial aid that they're giving or they're considering to give to Turkey does not empower the very man who caused this destruction. I mean, it seems to me we need to also encourage him to hold elections soon, yes? That's right, but it's a tricky topic because in, in Turkey, uh, anti-Western sentiment is, is very strong. And uh, 
any statement about the elections could be regarded as uh, international meddling. So that's uh, that's it. Uh, I think uh, risky move for foreign governments to make. I see. I see. So your your advice would be that that should be pressure behind the scenes, but not in public. That's right. Zachary, you've listened to this discussion, and I know you've been following the story closely, as have many, many of your colleagues and other young people. Um, do you think this is something that can um, motivate many young people to 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 try to get involved and to help with? I think so. I, I think this is hopefully a moment where, even in the midst of this tragedy, young people in the United States, in particular, um, can learn about or will be forced to learn about Turkish politics, Turkish policy, and the Turkish people. And I think that there's a, a real obligation uh, for young people who who care about these issues to pay attention and and to, to seek out these personal human stories that we've heard today. Right. And maybe even to help families that we know in our own communities right. that that like uh, like Gunul's family that that have relatives who who are mm-hmm. who are there suffering uh, at at this moment, uh, uh, Doctor Gunul Toll, I, I I can't tell you how grateful we are for you so courageously and and honestly sharing your experience as well as your enormous scholarship on these topics. I, I think you've provided us with a, a deep and rich understanding of this difficult uh, political and social moment in, in, in Turkey. Thank you, and, and really our best wishes to your family, and, and our hearts go out to, to you and, and the thousands, the tens of thousands of other Turkish citizens and Syrian citizens. We have not talked about Syria at all, uh, those who, who, who suffered in, in this moment. Thank you so much for giving me the platform to tell the story. Thank you, Zachary, for your moving poem, as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Please remember to donate, if you can, uh, to uh, Ahbab. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. A-H-B-A-P. And please also uh, donate to other organizations, provide assistance to those who are suffering. And also, when you have a chance, please pick up uh, Dr. Gunul Toll's book, Erdogan's War, which clearly will give you the background to understand, as she has explained to us, the political failures that have made this difficult moment so much more difficult for citizens in Turkey and elsewhere. Thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Coutini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.